Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Bill Pronzini, whose latest novel is The Violated. Bill Pronzini is the author of 85 novels, give or take. Also coming out in a couple of months, Endgame, which is a nameless detective novel. The Violated is a standalone. Somewhere along the way, there are also an absurd number of collections, over 300 short stories, collaborations with Marsha Muller, and several anthologies. And Bill Pronzini is 19 years old. Kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding. I feel Uh, like 109. (laughs) I'd like to talk about your career because it's pretty extensive, including one of my favorite books, which is probably long out of print, Gun and Cheek. Actually, Gun and Cheek is being reissued this year by Dover Books. It's not quite yet back in print, but will be shortly. First of all, when you've written so many noir novels, because virtually all of these are, would you say? I've done other things. I've done science fiction, uh, one mainstream novel, all sorts of different types of popular fiction. Well, then the question arises, how do you find a new way to play the same game? Well, it's difficult in series fiction. There's something like 43, 44 nameless detective novels, and I've had to make changes in the format of the series in order to keep it fresh for me as well as for the reader. Uh, I changed it from strictly first-person narration to a combination of first-person, third-person, where I could bring in other characters and get inside their heads as well. And that's worked pretty well for about the last 15 years. Just trying to find different ways of telling a story, trying to find different plots, different just something that challenges me so that it keeps it fresh. When watching, say, a TV show, do you ever see your plots regurgitated by others? I Yes, I do. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I won't name the author, but a best-selling writer took one of my plots and turned it into a novel of his own and, of course, made a heck of a lot more money than I did. <laughs> but the similarities are pretty obvious. Let's talk briefly about The Violated. Now, this is um, another noir novel. It's set in a city called Santa Rita, which is, I would guess, sort of Santa Rosa? It's a combination of Petaluma, uh, Santa Rosa, and some of the other North Bay towns. It's really a composite. It's not one specific place. The key to this novel, aside from the story, is that each chapter is narrated first person by one of the participants in the story. So we have various victims of sexual crime. We have their spouses. We have a couple of detectives. We have the mayor. What brought you to that particular format? To me, it's a challenge to create different voices. 
I also like doing this type of multiple first-person narration because I feel that I, I can get more deeply inside the characters' heads by letting them tell their own parts in the story. I wanted to do a novel about multiple rapes and their effect on everyone in, in a small town. Most of those kinds of novels about rape have urban settings and deal more about the rapist than about the victims and the peripheral people, uh, the, uh, the spouses, the families, the friends of the victims. And I wanted to do a novel like that in a broader sense. Also, rape to me is one of the, the worst crimes of all. The only one worse is murder. It just seemed like a, a very topical subject. This particular story that I was telling, all of these multiple rapes in this town and how it affects everyone in the town just seemed to work better using the multiple first-person point of view. And so there's a real challenge in that book was creating the different voices so that each one is distinctive so they don't all sound alike. Do you have an outline? Do you walk for miles and know exactly what you're going to do before you sit down and write? Not really. I let the story flow from the characters. Once I have the characters delineated in my mind, uh, and once I've established their voices, I let them tell the story and plot from the kinds of, of individuals they are. So I really can't envision what a finished book will look like when I start it. I have to let it just sort of evolve. The first few chapters all have different narrators, and then you start going back and I was wondering if the original idea might have been to just have a different narrator for each chapter. No, because two of the characters, for instance, are police officers who were investigating the crimes, and we have to see the case unfold from their point of view. And I wanted to get deeply into the effects of the crimes on the victims, on the victims' families, etc. So, no, I wanted a recurring set of characters. I think there are 15 who actually have voices in the book. When you come up with a subject like that, are there triggers, or had this been in the back of your mind for a while, had you been saying, well, you know, maybe I could use Nameless, no, I'm going to write a standalone? Yeah, it had been a book that I had been thinking about for quite some time. It wouldn't have worked as a Nameless, it would have been too narrow a focus. I wanted this to have a broader focus with the multiple characters and the small town setting. Along the way, sometimes books take right or left turns did this? In some respects, yes. As the characters developed, the story, as I had initially envisioned it, changed somewhat. The book opens with the murder of the individual who's suspected of the crimes. I needed to uh, develop clues and such that would reveal the identity of the rapist, whether or not it is the person who was murdered. And I didn't have all the clues when I began the, the story. And the clues that eventually led to the solution came out of the development of the characters. Do you think in terms ever, or, or is it after this number of books, is it kind of ingrained exactly when the next body will occur, when the next shift in plot will occur? I know that, for instance, in TV or movies with the three acts, do you even think in those terms ever? Not really, no. My books are character-driven, so I really don't plot in the normal sense. I don't outline. I don't have a definite idea of point A, point B, point C. 
what I call writing from the seat of my pants. I may not even know what I'm going to write on a specific day. I may just sit down and start typing and see how the character that I'm working with develops and what happens after that. So it's, uh, it's sort of a voyage of discovery for me in the same way it is for the reader. That opens up, of course, the door about what exactly is meant by discovery. It's pretentious to say the characters speak to you, right? Well, it is, yes. But, but discovery in the sense that I don't know what's going to happen, just like the reader of the book doesn't know what's going to happen. It gives it a certain spontaneity, I think, when I don't know. Sometimes I can write myself into a corner doing that, and I right. have to go back and revise. This is the one real... Uh, drawback to this type of approach to fiction is that you do write yourself into a corner sometimes. Usually I've been at it so long I can get my way out of it, but it oftentimes requires a lot of revision. Do you ever find yourself trying to back your way out of a corner and then you go, wait, I did that 13 books ago? Uh, there's probably some <laughs> repetition <laughs> after, after about 10 million words of fiction. I'm sure I repeat myself now and then. Creating new characters, you ever stumble across a character that you like so much in the standalone you'd like to bring him back? Yeah, actually, uh, there's a character in The Violated, the primary police official, who is Hispanic. I had a rapport with the character, and I thought he came across really well, and I wouldn't mind doing something else with him as the protagonist. If I come up with the right kind of, of story that would suit his talents, I would bring him back. Bill Pranzini, let's talk about your upcoming book, the next in the Nameless Detective series. His actually as a name, it's Bill, but we don't have a last name. I think that came probably two decades ago, I'm not sure. It did, because when I changed the format from uh, strictly first-person narration, it was easy enough not to give him a name. And the reason he doesn't have a name is it's not a shtick. It was because I could never think of a name that suited him, and neither could my editors. So we just sort of went along without having a name. And my editor at Random House, on the third book, I think, she said, if we're going to have an ongoing series, it has to be billed as something. So she's the one who came up with the nameless detective tag. And now he has two assistants, Jake and Tamara? Jake and Tamara, yeah. How did they come along? I felt because Nameless was getting older, a lot of the action needed to be done by a younger character. So I brought in Jake Runyon. He's an interesting character. He's got lots of problems, personal problems that he deals with as the series goes on. The same with Tamara, who was sort of a uh, hard-headed black woman in the beginning, very angry, and she develops and becomes a major part of the agency. She's a computer expert, which is why he hired her in the beginning, but she eventually becomes his partner and essentially takes over the agency's day-to-day -day activities. When you were in your 30s, Nameless was in his 50s, and now you're in your 70s. That would put him in his 90s. He doesn't age, or does he? I, no, he doesn't. I've had to fudge that. I've had to age him very, very slowly. In <laughs> fact, the first couple of books in the series, his background, he's a military investigator in, in Pearl Harbor <laughs> before the bombing, which would make him, what, 100 and something now. So I've had to fudge on that quite a bit. What about dealing with electronics? A lot of writers are having trouble now in that what used to be a phone call is now texting, and you can get caught up in a texting book, and that kind of is not interesting. 
It's not. And it's made plotting very difficult for detective fiction particularly because you can find out anything about anybody now very easily on the Internet, which I have Tamara do in the books. But plotting is much harder now to come up with something that's modern but that is not easily solved. You've also got the issue of the fact that everybody has cells. And in horror movies, of course, suddenly they scream out, we must be out of range or my phone is dead. But people take their phones everywhere now. And that would be a problem in terms of creating a story where people are trying to find something out. Exactly. That's been a serious problem with the Nameless series. I've had to plot differently develop characters and develop situations differently now than I did when I first started the series way back in the days of phone booths and uh, dial phones, you know. It's a different world. In creating, say, Endgame, are you starting from an idea like you started with the violate and, and wanting to explore something? How do you look at a nameless book? There are two storylines in the book, one which Jake Runyon investigates which takes him to a uh, small town up in the uh, Sierras. And there's another that Nameless investigates. Now, the Nameless one, I don't want to talk too much about it because this is a pivotal book in the series, and the Nameless's investigation will change his life radically. Uh, so I really don't want to get into that. But I specifically set out to develop that storyline for that reason because it is a pivotal point in his life and career. Several years ago, you did a book called Shackles, and the books around Shackles changed Nameless in some key ways. Now, here we are two decades later and maybe eight months later in his life or whatever. Do those events still affect him, or have you kind of fudged on that? No, they still affect him, not in the, as strong a, a fashion as they did immediately after Shackles. The books that came right after the, maybe the next three or four books seriously affected his outlook on life, on his detective work. I've eased away from that, just like I've eased away with the fact that in the beginning he collected pulp magazines, and that was a big issue. But I got tired of people comparing Nameless to a pulp detective, which he's not. So I sort of got away from that element of the series. And for the same reason, I got away from the effects on him of his ordeal in Shackles. Before we go into a little bit about your career, how far ahead are you? I mean, obviously, Endgame is finished. Are you finished with your next one after that? I'm finished with two more after that. They're in inventory. <laughs> I've been doing a series with Marsha, Marsha Muller, my wife, about a detective team operating in uh, the 1890s, a historical detective series. And Marsha decided she didn't want to do any more after the fifth book, but we had a contract for two more, so I've written the last two, and they're in inventory. Tor, which is my publisher, Tor Forge, asked me to do a Western, and I'm doing that. Westerns coming back into fashion? Yes, they are. Tor is expanding its Western line. And uh, I had an idea for, a, for an interesting, what I thought was interesting Western. Again, multiple first person, only set in the Old West. How about science fiction? I know that you were writing science fiction way back when. I know science fiction is never predictive, but did Bill Pronzini predict anything that came to pass? 
<laughs> not really. Not in my fiction, no. Not that I can think of. I still write science fiction, uh, short stories, mostly with uh, Barry Malsberg, who is a well-known uh, science fiction writer and an old friend. Uh, he and I have collaborated for 40-some years on novels and short stories. In fact, he and I have a story coming in the uh, May-June issue of Analog Science Fiction. Then there's Gun and Cheek, which is about to be reissued. And the premise of that, which is nonfiction, is writing that is so bad that it's good. And, of course, you called these books alternative classics. Do you think Kellyanne Conway stole the term alternatives from you? Because it almost feels that way. Could be. <laughs> I, I really don't know. I just coined the term. I, I felt that it pointed up that some of these books are so bad that they really are classics. They're brilliantly bad, uh, quotably bad. So I established what I call the alternative hall of fame, where, where the really, really top-of-the-line bad books I've enshrined in the hall of fame. Was there a six-gun and chic? Yes, there was, which is also being reissued. And there was a son of Gun and Cheek, so there are three volumes. But there never was a um, Ray Gun and Cheek. No, although I toyed with the idea for a while of doing Ray Gun and Cheek, <laughs> except it would have required. Actually, most science fiction is not that badly written. A lot of westerns are are badly written, and a lot of of early uh, mysteries were quite badly written. But science fiction, for some reason, there's there's bad science fiction, but it's it's not quotably bad. Bad movies, of course. Are you into bad movies? Oh, yes. Son of Gun and Cheek. I did a whole section on, on bad movies, including what I consider one of the worst movies ever made, Bella Lugosi's only um, color film, Scared to Death is the title. It's, it's marvelously bad. I mean, really, really. Well, people these days consider the two worst recent ones, Troll 2 and The Room. Are you familiar with either of those? I've not seen either one. Oh, you have to see The Room. If it's that bad, I want to see it. Bill Pronzini, let's go back a little bit now that I've got you in front of a microphone because your career goes way, way back. What prompted you to become a writer in the first place? Because your writing career, you are a working writer. Oh, very much so. I've always been a working writer. It's a business. It's not something I do in my spare time or anything. Uh, what prompted me to become a writer... Uh, I read YA fiction when I was quite young. Not the Hardy Boys, which I didn't particularly care for. There was a series called uh, the Ken Holt Mystery Series that I loved when I was a kid. I wrote my first novel when I was 12 years old, longhand on binder, ruled binder paper, all about a couple of kids who have a rented boat and spend a summer getting into all sorts of trouble. It was what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be a writer. And I'm one of those lucky people who got to be exactly what he wanted to be when he grew up. Okay, you go to high school, you go to college, late 50s, early 60s. Were you sending short stories out as a teenager? I did and did not sell any of them. I sent out quite a few in my teens. I didn't start selling uh, short stories. I was 22 when I sold my first story. That was 1966. But... I had sent it to an agent, and it was the agent that made the sale, not me. What were you reading? Were you reading Pulps? Were you reading Alan Drury? <laughs> oh, I was I was reading everything I could get my hands on. I've always been an omnivorous reader. I read a lot of adult mysteries, a lot of uh, 
magazines like uh, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, Manhunt. I read pulps. I read science fiction. I, just anything I could get my hands on. And you wanted to write mysteries? You want to write everything? Yeah, mysteries primarily. I started out wanting to write mysteries, yeah, because of, of my uh, my passion for those YA books, uh, the Ken Holt series and such. There was something about them that just uh, got my juices flowing. And your first novel, was that a nameless? No, it was a suspense novel called The Stalker, which took place, much of it takes place up in the Petaluma area on the uh, the Petaluma River. Well, you were living in San Francisco then. I was living in San Francisco, yes. I was living in uh, near Petrero Hill, on Petrero Hill, uh, when I wrote The Stalker, my first my first novel. And when did Nameless come along? Nameless was my second novel, The Snatch. I did that immediately after The Stalker. And what prompted you to make Nameless a kind of overweight, 50-ish plotter? I read a lot of private eye fiction, and I got a little tired of the superhero who was always, you know, the bottle... Uh, a bottle of bourbon in the desk drawer and the the blonde that's always making a pass at him. Every woman, in fact, makes a pass at him. I got tired of the uh, the shtick. It, it was being done so well by others that I wanted to do something different with, uh, with the format. So I thought, let's do a private eye who's a working stiff, sort of a... Uh, a blue-collar detective who um, doesn't drink, doesn't get passes thrown at him by every woman, every woman he meets, that sort of thing. Just a different take on the uh, detective genre. And by making it first person, you avoid having to give him a name. What I think of when I think of that is the film of Lady in the Lake because everything is through Marlowe's eyes, and you don't need to know his name. No, that's true. That's a movie I don't particularly like. but well, it's uh, not very good. It's not very good. <laughs> yeah, but again, I didn't set out to uh, have him be nameless, as I said before. It was just that I could never think, because he's, a, he's an Italian like me, and every name that I tried to give him just didn't sound right. And I couldn't give him my own name, so uh, I just didn't bother giving him a name. And again, it was my uh, editor at Random House who bought the first three uh, nameless books who dubbed him as the nameless detective. Were you always alternating standalones and nameless? Pretty much, yeah. I've done a lot more nameless books than standalones, but I try to do different things. It's what keeps me interested. I can't write the same book over and over again like a lot of uh, writers seem able to do. Uh, I have to do different things, even within the series format. I have to do different types of things. That's why I've written westerns, I've written science fiction, I've written mainstream. The challenge of doing something different. I looked you up on IMDb, and you worked on something called Tales of the Unexpected, or is is that right? No, there was a series, Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected. It was a British TV series a number of years ago, and two of my short stories were adapted for episodes. And there was one film called Tales You Lose, <laughs> Heads You're Dead, and it was a made-for-TV movie? Again, it was based on a short story of mine. My short story was called Liar's Dice, but the the producers of the film and in their infinite wisdom decided that Liar's Dice was not a good title, so they decided to call it Heads You Win, Tales You're Dead, which is... A ridiculous title. 
you know, I looked at it and went, oh, I've never heard of this film. <laughs> it was it was made for cable TV, uh, USA cable TV. It's not a very good film. It was directed by Tim Matheson. Do you do any screenplays? Yes, I, I wrote four screenplays, none of which were produced. My first real standalone, first strong standalone, was called Snowbound. It sold to the movies, and I got to do the screenplay for it. But it was it was such a bad screenplay that they didn't produce it, and they couldn't get someone to write a good screenplay, so it was never made. Nameless, I assume, has been optioned several times. Yes, once by a, a man who wanted to turn it into a comedy TV series starring Dom DeLuise. I had a crisis of conscience. I said, you know, the money is really going to be good on this, but I, I don't know that I, I could stand to look at Nameless being played by Dom DeLuise. Well, I remember a TV show called Canon. That's sort of similar premise. Yeah, except that that was done seriously. Uh, what this producer wanted to do was make it into a silly slapstick comedy privatized series, and it would not have worked. Canon did work. and. It did. It felt as if I was watching Nameless. Did that dawn on you? Not really, because Canon came about right around the same time the first Nameless novel was published. Oh. I, I was not even living in the country at that time. So, no, I didn't, I didn't catch up to Canon until after I got back. From, I'd lived in Europe for four years. After I got back from Europe uh, was when I caught up with Canon. These days, what kind of research do you do? Well, I had to do quite a bit of research on uh, The Violated, for instance, on... Uh, psychosexual matters and uh, what leads someone to become a rapist, that type of thing. I had to do a lot of research on police procedure. I do a fair amount of research for this series that Marsha and I are doing, this um, Carpenter and Quinn Cannon series of historical mysteries. That requires a lot of research into what San Francisco was like, what the 1890s were like in California. Well, Quinn Cannon was a solo originally, wasn't it? He was. I would think that given what we were talking before about the difficulty with writing a mystery taking place in the electronic age, that on some level, despite the research, it would almost be easier or more fun to write one in the 1890s. It is, no question. The research is fun. Uh, the plotting is much, much easier to plot. You can tell all sorts of stories set in the 1890s that you couldn't tell today. You could have told them in the 50s or 60s before, or 70s before uh, uh, the age of electronics, but plotting just is much, much easier with books set back then. Do you always know when you're starting a short story that it's a short story? Yes. I usually, when I write a short story, I often write the ending first, cause I, so I know where I'm going. Unlike writing a novel where it's a, said before a voyage of discovery, writing a short story, it's usually pretty clear in my mind exactly what I want to say in it. So I know where I'm going from point A to point B. Are there any novels that got so tangled up that you eventually abandoned? Short term, yes. There were a couple that I started and put aside. I ended up going back to them later and reworking them. There's nothing that I've done, what we call a trunk item, uh, where it just you abandon it and stick it in the trunk. No, I've managed to rework everything, even stories that I felt were not very good. If I went back to them and got a different slant on it, I would be able to develop it into something that I felt was good. Did you ever take 
a nameless thing that was going nowhere and make it a standalone or vice versa? No. Really? No. You always knew that the nameless one was going to be a nameless... Yeah, it, it just, just by the, the type of story it was going to be. And then it's character-driven, right. My standalones tend to deal with larger issues than the nameless books, which is not to say that nameless books don't deal with issues. They do, but I think my standalones tend to deal with, with larger, broader scope issues. Well, that brings me to questions about politics, particularly in the age of Trump. Do you ever look at that and shy away from specifics just to make them more timeless? Uh, are you willing to tackle current events? How does that work for Bill Pronzini? Uh, there was a time when I shied away from it. I don't anymore. I pretty much say what I feel now. I don't make an issue out of certain things, although <laughs> we won't get into it, but in The Violated, there's... Uh, uh, one one of my uh, one of my strong opinions is pretty clearly delineated in in the violated. We're now in an era where fascism is on the ascendant at the moment. I don't think it's possible to go through a day without realizing that, even if you're living in a cave. Oh, absolutely, no question about it. You have to deal with it in fiction to a certain extent. You can't just ignore it. My books tend not to be political. I'm basically an entertainer, but I do feel strongly about certain issues. And uh, the older I get, the more likely I am to put them into a piece of fiction. Well, obviously, The Violated deals with how we deal with sexual abuse. I mean, Right, exactly. And the effects on everyone of this type of crime, uh, not just on the victims, but on everyone who, do, who has to deal with it. And there's a feminist component as well in The Violated because you're writing from the perspective of women several times. Oh, right. There's a strong feminist perspective. My stance on how I feel about guns, how I feel about assault weapons is pretty obvious in, uh, in The Violated. <laughs> well, it's almost you could tell who's the Trump supporters, too. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Have you written specific books about guns? No, I, the, the Nameless has a gun. I've, I've had to have him, but I don't have him carry it. I don't have him use it very often. If you're doing a detective series, you pretty much have to have the protagonist carry a gun. I don't have anything against responsible gun ownership. I think that that's perfectly fine. It's irresponsible gun ownership that bothers me and the NRA. I mean, the NRA bothers the hell out of me. What about race? Have you dealt with race in your books? I mean, you have Tamara, who's black. I, I do deal with race in my books, yeah. And in The Violated, one of the main characters is, is Hispanic. I deal with it. I don't try to hit the reader over the head with race. I make comments on race, and I use minority characters quite a bit in my books. But I, I'm not up on a soapbox in the books. I think on some level... I don't think it's possible to write fiction without having some kind of point of view that's going to come out. Oh, absolutely. You have to have a point of view. You, you can't just play ostrich uh, when you're writing fiction. Writing strictly for entertainment purposes, you, you still have to, uh, you have to take a stand on things. And what about in the uh, 1890s books? Marcia and I were dealing with uh, feminist issues. One of the characters is a strong suffragist, actually. Suffragette is a, is a British term. Sabina Carpenter is a very strong uh, suffragist, and one of the novels deals with the suffragist movement. 
Do you plan to go back to science fiction? Only in short stories. I, I don't plan to do any science fiction novels. The field has changed quite a bit, and I doubt that I could write modern science fiction. I can do it in a short form, but in, in the longer uh, novels, no. I, I don't feel that I would do that sort of thing very well. Bill Pronzini, you have two books coming up in the Carpenter Quincannon series, and you have Endgame coming up, and your next standalone? I don't have one in the works. I may do one within the next year if I can come up with the right idea, but I don't have one right now that I'm planning to do. Any anthologies coming up? No, I, I gave up the anthology game a long time ago. It's just too much work. And if somebody wanted to read the nameless books and wanted two or three to get going on them, what would you recommend? Uh, that's a good question. The, I think the best of the nameless books is Shackles. It's, it's, it's atypical, and it's, it's not like any other private eye novel because he's kidnapped and, and kept prisoner in a mountain cabin for three months. It's more a personal story. Uh, Shackles, I think, is the best book in the series. Other books that I think are, are pretty good are Crazy Bone, Fever, Strangers, and Endgame. You ever worry about the fact that sometimes your books have names of other books? Like Endgame? <laughs> like Endgame. No, I think you can't copyright a title, so it's it's pretty difficult to come up with a title that somebody else hasn't used. I don't think anybody's used Crazy Bone. No, I, it doesn't bother me, and unless it's a book that's similar to mine that's come out at the same time, which uh, has never happened, although it happened to Marsha once, and she was forced to change the title of her book at the last minute for that reason. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>